This past week, I have prepared and crumpled up three different sermons. Um, it's really interesting when you dive into a passage, how the Holy Spirit will steer you different directions and you can fight what you think he's saying and then you write something that you're sure that you wanna say, but he says, no, 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 no. So I'm just gonna kinda give you a, a little bit of a heads up. The passage that we're going to walk through and talk about today it's got a lot of different aspects to it. And I know Kathy Haug was with you a couple of weeks ago and we have been learning as a family how to dive deeper into the scriptures. So my encouragement to all of you is that if you see something as we're reading through this passage and I don't cover it today, dive in. Because there's a lot of good stuff in this passage and I'm just excited to share a really simple message this morning. A really simple message, in fact, when you hear the sermon, and if you go back and look at the words and the lyrics of the songs, not only that we've already sung, but that we're going to sing, you're, it's gonna jump off the page like, oh boy, it is obvious that Jesus loves us. So again, we're following Tim Keller's book, and this particular chapter is called The Ransom. So as we go through this, just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles or your phones or whatever you've brought along with you. And we're going to read through and we're going to read from Mark 10. I'm going to start in verse 32. We're going to read all the way through verse 45. Mark 10, starting at verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise." Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, the first thing that struck me as I looked at this is early on in this passage where it says that they were astonished, that they were amazed. And, I, and that just kind of struck me, what would be so amazing about that? Because, 
You know, Jesus being out in front would not have been unusual. As we've kind of learned over the last several years, you know, the rabbi would lead the pack, and as he would teach, they would pass the teachings on down the line as they, as they walked and as they traveled and as they talked. So that part wouldn't be unusual, but I think what was unusual and what really stood out to the disciples at this point in time was his resolute determination to get to Jerusalem, to go to his destiny. His face was set like a flint. Jesus doesn't linger. He has unwavering determination, and that just amazes the disciples. So I think that sets the stage for all of us to know Jesus is focused on where he's going. And they, like us, shouldn't and couldn't get over it. And then he took them aside. And now for the third time, we read in Mark, in his gospel, where he shared with them about what was awaiting him as he would arrive in Jerusalem. But the difference this time is Jesus is much more uh, specific. If you look at verse 33 through 34, if we read that again together, it says, we are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. He knew that he was going to be beaten and crushed and killed. But perhaps even more interesting, at least if you put yourself in the place of the disciples, would have been when he talks about that he was going to be betrayed First by his own, but then he was going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Jesus understood what was going to happen. To understand the significance of this, I think it is important for us to remember what was happening in the Old Testament, particularly on the Day of Atonement when it talks about sacrifice. Because during the Day of Atonement, not only was the animal, the, the lamb that was sacrificed, killed and the blood was scattered over the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies, but also there was another animal where the sins of the people was symbolically transferred to the back of this scapegoat. And that scapegoat was put out into the wilderness. He was put outside the camp. He was put out into the outer darkness. That's what it would mean to a Jew to be delivered to the Gentiles. To be placed in the hands of the Gentiles would be placed outside of the covenant. To be placed outside of the camp. Outside where the presence of God was and is focused. And so when the disciples heard that, you can see why they would be amazed and almost taken aback by just that statement alone. But then Jesus goes on in the rest of the text and he talks about, and he's very well aware that they're going to mock him. They're going to scourge him. They're going to spit upon him and ultimately they will kill him. And what makes this passage interesting is no sooner does he get done telling that story now and those descriptions for the third time, some, of the, some folks, some theologians call that the theology of the cross where Jesus is going to do what Jesus has to do for our ransom. No sooner does he get those words out of his mouth than two of his inner circle, two of his closest friends, come to him and they come with a theology of glory. They don't get it. 
We've seen it time and time again of the disciples, haven't we? Well, they just don't get it. They're waiting around thinking Jesus is going to step into his glory. And at that point, they might have not only an ability to participate in that glory, but they might also have a high position in it. Listen to verse 35. It says here, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That might be the very first documentation of the name it, claim it type of gospel ever. What they're asking for is extraordinary. They want status. They want a position of power. Now let me step back just a minute because I think it's important for you to hear what I'm saying. It's not wrong for each of us to want your life to matter. It's not wrong for each of us to want our life to make a difference. I heard an interesting definition of sin in relation to this. Sin is a good virtue run amok. Kind of an interesting twist on that. God has created each of us for a purpose. That our lives will be significant. That they will matter. That they will count. But there's always a very thin line between the aspiration for significance and the will to power. A will to dominate everyone else. So the two of them wanted to be exalted above everybody else. All we're asking, Jesus, is that we put one on the right, one on the left. You decide we're okay with that. We just want to be where the action is, where we're in charge with you. Now, let's give a little bit of credit. They did get one thing right. When they <clears throat> stated that he was going to be in his glory, that in fact is true. They just had a little messed up idea of what that was. He will, in fact, take his kingly seat Someday, and he will rule the world. When I look at verse 38, Jesus' response, it's kind of interesting because I keep coming back to last week's lesson. Remember last week when verse 21, if you have your Bibles open yet, where when Jesus looked at the rich young ruler, Jesus looked at him and loved him. I got to think that's just about how Jesus looked at those two disciples. The young ruler, he had some things messed up, but yet Jesus still loved him. The disciples, oh boy, oh boy, time and time again, this time glaringly so, have something really messed up. But can't you just see and sense that Jesus loves them in the way he responds? It's almost as like he's just shaking his head, boys, 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 you have no idea. You don't know what you're asking. You don't have a clue. Side note to all of us, in a world where there seems to be controversy, differing of opinions, rights and wrongs, blacks and whites, notice how Jesus responds with love. With love. Doesn't tell them they're right, but he's not all over them. 
He's not telling them what fools they are. He's looking at them with love in his eyes. And it's interesting, he uses two different metaphors, which would be very familiar to the disciples because they're used time and time again throughout the Old Testament. The first is when he says to drink the cup. To drink the cup. This is before Gethsemane. This is before he's in the garden begging for the cup to be passed from him. If you understand and look at the Old Testament, you're going to see a lot of Old Testament drinking the dregs of the wrath of God's judgment. Anybody heard that before? Anybody besides me that goes, what is that all about? What is drinking the dregs? Okay, here it is in a nutshell. It's like drinking the little bit of coffee grounds yet in the bottom of the coffee, he's going to drink to the very last sip. He's going to drink all the bitterness, all the muck, all the yuck, all the stuff that comes with it. That's what he's going to do for us. So when you read that Old Testament lingo, now you know what Jesus has done. And Jesus knew that cup was waiting for him. But yet, he was on a path to Jerusalem. He had his face set like a flint. And he said to the disciples, you want to be on my right hand? You want to be on my left? You want to share in my glory? Folks, there is no glory without the cross. And you can't come to where I'm going unless you drink the cup. Then the second metaphor is, can you be baptized? Now again, we have to understand it seems simplistic, but we need to make sure that we understand. He's not talking about like John the Baptist, baptism in the river baptized. He's talking about baptism in the sense, in the context that to be flooded, to be buried, to be inundated with the fury of God the Father, to be suffocated by the Father's judgment. That's the baptism that he's talking about. Are you prepared to take that, he asked them. Listen to what they say. This is almost comical for those of us on this side. We can. I'm in. Count me in. Continuing their cluelessness, by the way, in case you didn't catch the irony or the, of my statement there. Pass the cup. We're ready. And Jesus told them, in a certain sense, yes, you will drink. And as we know, as their lives played out, they did, in fact. Thankfully, none of us has to drink the cup that Jesus did. However, we have been called to identify with that cup and with that baptism. We are united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter, rejoice. Those who identify with him in his suffering will participate him participate with him in his glory. That, my friends, is the Christian hope. And then verse 41, when it says, the other disciples, the other 10 heard about this and they became indignant. That's probably an understatement, I would guess. I would guess there was a tad bit of fury. I would guess amongst the sailors and the fishermen of the group, there may have been some language that wouldn't have been appropriate for a church setting. It could have been kind of ugly. And again, I'm amazed at what Jesus does. If you look at and think about it, his response to those 10, slightly different words, but the message is basically the same as what he told James and John. 
He basically is telling them, like he told James and John, what it's going to be and what it's going to take to be a disciple. What does verse 42 tell us? Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentile lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over with them. It's interesting, Jesus uses a lesson not only to the disciples, but that we also need to hear again and again and again. Notice the stark contrast of what the secular world teaches and the culture of today or even then versus what the scriptures teach us today. Every day we keep getting bombarded with messages from our culture. And if we're not careful, that just eats away at what we know is right. That's why we need to keep coming back, my friends. That's why we need to keep diving deeper into scripture. That's why we need to come back into community. It's why we need to be there for each other. That's how we get our marching orders. Not from culture, but from the scripture. Summary of what culture says in verse 42. Those in authority lorded over their subordinates. They don't feel any sense of responsibility. All they want to do is to rule and exercise authority. No humility, no willingness to serve. You look at verse 43 through 44, I don't think Jesus could be any more plain. I love a good simple teaching. Not so with you. Bold print, underlined, highlighted, circled, not so with you or me. Whoever desires to be great shall be your servant. You want to be great? You got to be small. You want to be exalted? You got to be humbled. You want to rule? You have to serve. That, my friends, we are reminded again and again and again. We've talked about his kingdom. That is the ethics of Jesus. Whoever desires to be first will be slave of all. We're reminded in this short little snippet that the Messiah came to live a life of sacrificial dying. Dying service before he comes a second time to rule in glory. And for those of us that are following him, we're also called to live a life of dying service before we can reign with him in glory. I was reminded this morning when I walked in you haven't been over by the sanctuary for a while, Kelly Corver, Clayton's wife, has put this display up at Christmas, and maybe you've heard this before. And if you don't know why we haven't taken that down, it's very symbolically, we're actually trying to prove a point. We're trying to show you what it is to die to yourself. But I'm encouraging you to come and check it out come Easter morning, because there's going to be new life. And there's going to be things coming from that when we learn to die from ourselves. So then we come to the last verse, verse 45. It says this once again. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did not come to serve, to be served rather, but to serve. Can you just hear Jesus saying emphatically? If you read between the lines, but if you know the story, 
You know where his heart is, and you can hear these things. I didn't come to have my life taken from me by a bunch of ruthless thugs in Jerusalem. I came to give it. Nobody is going to take my life from me. And as we go in farther and farther into studying what that last Holy Week is and what Christ did as he moved toward the cross, he was the one pushing the buttons. He was the one making it happen. They didn't take it from him. He gave it. And here's the whole point of the morning. He gave it as a ransom for us, for many. You know, our teaching team's big on a sermon in a sentence. Here it is. Jesus understands the terms of the concept of ransom. He understood that his life was going to be a ransom. So my question that I've been just, I wouldn't say struggling, but just has kept coming back, do I? Do I understand that he gave his life as a ransom? Now, you know what? That sounds pretty like, well, duh. I mean, if you think about all the songs, we sing about it a lot. We talk about it a lot. But what I found in my own self as I was examining myself the last few weeks is it's like a lot of things in my Christian faith. I know the right answers. I know the right words. I know the right terminology. I know all that stuff. But do I know it here? Do I know it and sense it and feel it here? What he did for me. How much he loves me to have done that. You know, it's interesting, side note, early on in the church, and I got to admit, I'm still trying to get my head around this one. There's some early belief in, one of the early, in some of the early churches was that when Jesus was crucified and he paid this ransom, that he was paying a ransom to the devil. I'm going to say that is incorrect. I'm going to say that he crushed the head of Satan and he paid the ransom to God the Father. Huge difference. Satan didn't ever have us. He won't have us because Jesus won't have it. He paid the ransom to the Father. He paid it to God to satisfy his perfect judgment. He paid it to the Father to satisfy the perfect demands of justice. Just as in the Old Testament, it talks a lot about kin, kinsman redeemers. I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase. There's a lot of different things. But again, that was somebody who, back in the Old Testament, was charged with the duty of restoring or recovering the rights of someone or avenging wrongs in exchange for a price to be paid of some sort. Sometimes it was a family member. Sometimes it was a servant and an indentured slave type of a deal. But that's what a kinsman. And Jesus was our Kinsman Redeemer. Christ purchased his bride with his blood. That's us. That's us. The only way God deals with our sin is through the blood of the Lamb. We've received our redemption through his blood. The Father has been paid. The ransom has been paid. We Every one of us who are unable to make that payment, we've had that debt paid for us. That ransom has been paid by the suffering servant. Let me read a very familiar 
passage to all of us that in context of this morning, maybe we'll shed some new light. John 3, starting at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Friends, you got to know that truth. Jesus has died for you. Jesus loves you. He's paid our ransom. In just a minute, we're going to sing a song. He has paid it all. And when we begin to start to understand that, the message really is quite simple this morning. For some of us, it's going to go way back to our childhood. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And as we sing these songs to close our morning, I don't know what your response needs to be or should be or could be. There's a lot of different things that you might want to consider. Just be open to what the Spirit maybe is telling you. But first and foremost, would you be willing and open to just letting the love of Jesus pour over you? We talk a lot about soaking prayer in our prayer ministry here. Would you just be soaked with the prayers and the praise that these songs in the next few minutes can do for you? Maybe it's to take communion. We'll have some elders up here shortly during those songs. Maybe it's you want to celebrate and just thank Jesus for what he's done on your behalf, the ransom that he's paid. Maybe, and I might be speaking to some of the folks here, Maybe you're not big on singing. Maybe that's not your thing. This morning, at the very least, would you just pay attention to the words that we sing? And like I said, just let the love of Jesus wash over you.